Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's February the 3rd, 2022. as the Rolling Stones reminded us, time waits for nobody. Uh, doesn't even wait for me. It's my birthday, February the 3rd, 2022. Oh. I was born uh, in 1960. Time moves on. It won't last forever, so we should have fun while we can. I've had a lot of fun in my life. I've been very lucky, very privi- privileged, and I remain, uh, I think, quite privileged living in San Francisco and talking to some of the most interesting people in the world. And uh, my privilege was underlined, I think, by both my guest today on the show and by his story. Um, he begins uh, his introduction to a magnificent new book, a book which is one of the most uh, memorable and shocking books I think I've read recently. The introduction is uh, entitled Palace de Excretia. Um, and he is also writing about his birthday, it's only four days after mine, February 7th. I, I'm just going to I'm just gonna um, uh, read the first couple of sentences of this book. When I think about jail, my mind goes to Tuesday, February 7th, 2008. My birthday, not that it mattered, because who celebrates being 31? Uh, at only 9 a.m., I was slowly roasting in my uninsulated campus housing unit. I'd walked my son Mika to school and was mulling the day's agenda. In a few days, I would go before a university judicial officer's committee to beg for a, retrie- uh, for a reprieve for having been arrested on university property several months before. The charges had nothing to do with the university, and the case was in the early stages of adjudication. But if my hearing with that committee went unfavorably, I could be suspended from the graduate program or expelled from school altogether. This book is about time and it's about jail. Uh, The book is called Indefinite, Doing Time in Jail. Uh, My guest is Michael L. Walker. Uh, He really did do time in jail. Uh, It's a really important new book. It's just out. It's an Oxford University press book. And I'm really honored that uh, Michael is joining us from his home in Minnesota. Michael, welcome. Yes, thank you. And happy birthday in four days time. What are you going to do for your birthday? You're a little younger than me. How old are you (laughs) going to be on uh, December? Uh, I will be, how old? I'll be 45. I think after 40, I stopped counting and it just, just was another birthday. Um, So in, in that time between being 31 and being 45, now, you did some time in jail, and this is what this book is in part about, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's largely about what, the, what it means to do time in jail. Um, I think before I had been, if you had asked me what it means to go to jail, I wouldn't have been able to give you an answer at all. It's not that I didn't have friends or, or even some family members who've been to jail. But I think, you know, when people come home from jail, they don't actually talk about the experiences. I've learned this more recently as I was telling friends of mine that my book was coming out and a few of them had, had admitted that they had family, uh, close family members. One of my friends is two of his brothers, his sister, cousins had all been to jail and he didn't know anything at all about it. 
And I, I think, so here's an opportunity to talk about an institution that is, you know, one of the most important institutions in the criminal justice system is the front house. So unfortunately we know very little about it. Largely because- yeah, It's funny, um, you're right. Uh, yeah. In a way we know more about Russian jails from reading Dostoevsky. <laughs> um, I, I mentioned uh, the, the Stones uh, song, Time Waits for No One, the 1974 album, It's Only Rock and Roll. Why did you entitle your book Indefinite? Um, there's an image of a clock without hands on the cover of your book. What is it about time that jail destroys? So the main issue here is just about 70% or just under 70% of the people who are in jail are facing charges, but they have yet to be adjudicated. So they are supposedly the those who benefit from the presumption of innocence. They are supposed to be the innocent until proven guilty. If you go to prison, that means you've actually been sentenced. You have a time that you're supposed to be released. You have to try to imagine if I told you to stay in your room until next week, um, it may be painful, but you know that in next week you'll be able to get out. But if I tell you to stay in your room just until and you don't know when you're going to get out. Maybe other people come and go out of that room and you still have no sense of when you're going. There's no there's no marker to let you know that you're progressing, progressing through anything that's going to lead to you eventually being able to leave that room. This becomes like really, really emotionally taxing. So the thing that makes jail unique to, to prison and rel relative to prison is that you're doing time indefinitely. I mean, you can be, you know, many of the men I met in there are three years, four years, nine years in jail consecutively waiting for trial. It was not, it's the type of place where um, time loses, it loses its normal meaning and you stop thinking about the future and you start becoming very focused on the present, the only thing that you can control. That's the punishment, isn't it, Michael? It, it seems to suggesting the destruction of time. I'm, I'm, uh, you have one excellent uh, paragraph um, uh, on what it was like. You say, quite frankly, if you've never been to jail, a day inside can feel like a week. What does that feel like when you lose control of your sense of time? How does that undermine you as a human being? Well, you know, you have to think about it like this. You know, most of the day we compartmentalize ourselves according to the clock, right? So in the mornings, for example, I'm getting my kids ready. I'm daddy. And then in the afternoon, I'm teaching. So I'll be Professor Walker. And then later on in the day, my wife comes home from work and I get to just be Michael. And then I'm still dealing with the kids. I get to be daddy again. But I get, you have an opportunity or I get to have an opportunity to sort of compartmentalize my life according to the time. And as I move through time and move through these different uh, periods, I also uh, adopt different roles. Well, in jail, all of that is destroyed. There is no moving through these different roles. The only thing that matters is the fact that you are incarcerated. So you lose the ability to still be um, to sort of put up these emotional guardrails that allow you to say, okay, right now I can't deal with what it means to be a, a father, I've got to do this work. Or right now I can't think about what it means to be a professor, I've got to deal with being a husband. In jail, all of those normal organizational you know, features that allow you to sort of separate what you're going to do at a particular time, all of those are destroyed. And what's worse is there's no real sense of when it's ever going to change. It is the problem of not being able to situate yourself in when you are that becomes so um, difficult to deal with. And then, you know, in many of the, the housing units, there is no clock or if there is a clock, it long since stopped. So you start to lose meaning with time. You look at the clock, it says 9.37. It doesn't matter to you whether it's 9.37 a.m. or p.m. You know, it, it may be, in fact, uh, for many people who are in, in jail, 
there is no natural sunlight. Right, there's and, no light. It, it's in a funny yeah. way. It's a sort of. I'm not saying it's like a Las Vegas casino, but it, yes, I know what you uh, mean. Though, right? Las Vegas casino <laughs> is intent on taking your money. Absolutely. And jails are intent on taking your life. Absolutely. It, 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 I, I've, I've experienced that when I used to go to when I was a kid. I used to go to the circus circus with my mom, and you'd be in there for hours and hours and hours. You come outside and you realize it's daytime. And you see the sun and you realize, oh, my God, that, that entire time felt like its own little world. Jail does that same thing to you. It creates this sense of sort of being in another world. Earlier today, I talked to Dave Pell, a San Francisco-based journalist. And like so many journalists, particularly on the left, he's worried about two Americas. Hmm. But the real, perhaps, two Americas are the Americans, like myself, not that I'm an American, but I live in this country, who have no experience, no knowledge of jail, don't know anyone who's been and then the Americans who know about jail, and, and this is quite a large community, you know, um, uh, and I'm quoting you again from the book on American jails, American jails can constitute one of the largest people processing machines in the United States. In 2019, state and federal prisons admitted 530,900 people. Jails, however, admitted over 10 million people each and every year between 2005 and 2018. This is an astonishing number, um, Michael, which most people, maybe they're kind of aware of, but most people are shocked and ignorant of this. Why? Is it, I mean, everyone talks about America's worst secret being slavery. Of course, there is a, a strong racial component to jails. Is it the 21st century version of slavery? I don't know if I would, um, I've heard this comparison made. I'm not sure um, if I would make, if I would go quite as far. Michelle Alexander's book does a great job. Uh, the New Jim Crow does a, make, a good job yeah. of, of sort of explaining the consequences of, of mass incarceration. The way that I would think about this is more about what it means to disappear an entire population of people. So, you know, when mm. someone is in jail, they become forgotten. I mean, not necessarily to the people who, you know, who know them, who love them, their friends, but the longer you're there, the longer those, those relationships become um, sort of weakened and you have a harder time maintaining them, even if you're a father, you're a husband or your wife, whatever you are. But we, we tend to put people in jail as a way of just saying, let's forget about them, you know, and then we do, we forget about them. And because they're gone, because, you know, because you're in jail, there's an assumption that you have already been found guilty of whatever it is that you're being charged with. So it doesn't, you know, your presence in jail is taken as evidence that you've done whatever it is, done something wrong. And so therefore we don't, we feel very justified and legitimated in saying, I don't have to think about you. Some people might be watching this, Michael, and thinking Michael L. Walker is an example of how jails work. He, he, he clearly had committed a crime. You, you're not denying that. Now you are a, a professor at the University of Minnesota. You have a really important book coming out from Oxford University Press. If Michael can rebuild and recreate himself, anyone can. What would you say to that? Yeah, that I, um, that I, I think that's a dangerous narrative. So I like to, to think about it like this, right? We, we know the stories of success because they're so rare. Mm. The more common story is a story that we don't know much about, you know, one of the guys that I was in with, I've, I've uh, regained contact with him. And he and I talk about this every now and again, whenever we chat, that how lucky we feel. In, in many ways, I was exceptional. So it, it sh we shouldn't think of me as an example of what can be done. 
this is not to say that I didn't work extremely hard. I did. This is not to say that um, that I didn't do everything I possibly could to get out and, and to rebuild my life. I absolutely did. But I also had help along the way and I had to make good on the help that I was given. But I had help. Yeah. I and you dedicate, I assume in the beginning, uh, you dedicate the book to um, to Rhonda and Heather. And I'm sure you had other loving members of your family yeah. or friends who contributed to it. Absolutely. I had professors who who didn't give up on me. Um, I had been kicked out of school. I was kicked out of the graduate program that I was in. I had a year of graduate school under my belt. I'm somebody who naturally, you know, is inclined to do people watching and to sort of write. So this fit me in some regards, the ability to, to turn this into something good. This doesn't mean that no one can ever, you know, go to jail and, su and succeed. Obviously it's, it's possible, but I don't want to, I wouldn't want to tell the story in such a way that makes it seem as if it's probable that anyone can just do it. Um, there are incredible difficulties and academia is, is a little bit more forgiving than other kinds of industries that someone might want to get involved in. America is a particularly unforgiving place, uh, I think at least as an outsider. Um, I've been rereading Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Tocqueville originally came to America in the middle of the 19th century to examine its prison system. And when he came, he saw it as a more forgiving, tolerant, understanding place than Europe. What has happened since the time of Tocqueville? Man, we've, our sort of ideological, ideologies around punishment have changed to some degree. Um, one of my close friends, she's uh, Dr. Evelyn Patterson. She's at a Vanderbilt University. She's brilliant. She's currently writing a book. And one of the key arguments that she's making is that you know, we normally start the, the era of mass imprisonment or mass incarceration around the 1970s, indicating usually where, so you see these graphs where, you know, time is moving this way, and then all of a sudden you see this giant jump of the numbers of people who are incarcerated, most of them being Black Americans. But what she's found is actually, this has always been true for Black Americans in the United States. So in some regards, I wouldn't argue that there's, that things have changed so much, at least for not, not if you're a Black American. We've always had higher, you know, we've always suffered through mass imprisonment, mass incarceration. But I will say that, you know, the political tides matter. You know, as a, another friend of mine, John Eason, uh, who also wrote a great book called um, um, Big House on the Prairie, one of his key arguments is that, you know, Democrats will focus on public works and they'll build prisons. You know, he talks about the prison boom and then Republicans will come behind them and fill the prisons. And so you have this really interesting political relationship whereby mass incarceration or incarceration just continues. And it's business. It makes money. One of the more heartbreaking elements of your book was your description of the moment you realized that you were going to jail. Um, uh, you uh, you write about looking through a book um, and you say I was I, you were reading a book. Um, I was still committing my mind to reading the book instead of looking at the first pages when two sheriff's deputies approached. Mr. Walker, one began, stand and face the wall. Stunned, I complied. My wrists readied themselves for handcuffs before the deputy took them from his belt, long before I understood why I was being detained. It seemed that moment, this gray area between freedom and incarceration was a particularly traumatic one, just not just for you, but you express it, I think, with a great deal of poetry. It, it was. It's, it's hard to explain. It's hard to get it. Um, to even describe it in a way that's really accurate. You know, I had started that day off going, thinking I was going to go down to, to the county to just pay some traffic fines. I wasn't expecting to be arrested. 
And what did you actually do wrong? Why did you get sent to jail? So I had I, this. I was in for petty theft. Um, and what what kept happening was I kept the the charges would be dropped. And, and what, what, what is petty theft? That's stealing petty from a theft store? is like uh, uh, joyriding. Uh, uh, what is it? What is the the actual crime? It's um, uh, auto theft, car car theft. Okay. So what happened? Uh, I it, it would get you know the charges would be dropped, or I'd get I'd be take I'd be arrested, taken to jail, and then I'd get out on on bail or um, get released because I had a nonviolent charge, and they needed to make room for people who had violent charges. Um, but all of this kind of is inconsequential because once you go to jail, it doesn't really matter what your charges are. Everybody's in there in general population together. So your right. cellmate, you may be in, for example, for drunk driving. Your cellmate may be in for attempted murder. And or you may be in, in a housing unit for, you know, name your nonviolent charge. Maybe you didn't pay, could be a, a really bad traffic violation. Um, and your cellmate may be in for, um, child molestation just hasn't been moved to protective custody yet. I mean, it, it's it, there's no separation of people based upon the charges. And this is why one of the things that makes jail so unique that everybody is experiencing basically the same terrible conditions. And the other thing you do, which I thought was quite heartbreaking, is you bring up other people. Um, uh, you think about your son as, you're, as you know you're about to go to jail. Um, a deputy asked me if I needed to call anyone. Shit, Mika, I left a message on my mother's cell phone. Just the facts. I've been arrested. I'll probably be in the Providence downtown jail. Please pick up Mika from jail. Uh, whoops, not from jail. Please, please pick <laughs> school, up Mika yeah. from school. <laughs> the tragic thing is that life goes on, doesn't it, Michael? You go to jail and the rest of the world continues. Absolutely. This is actually one of the parts that, that I don't know that everybody thinks about. I, I I think there's an assumption that if you've been arrested, you you had nothing else going on in your life and that, you know, you were just basically just sort of just free floating through, from, through society, just sort of committing, committing crimes. The reality is much different. People have plans. You have other things going on. You have responsibilities and you may have done something wrong. You may not have done something wrong. Not everybody in jail is actually guilty of anything. But once you're arrested, your life still has to continue. If you had work, that work is going to that you may lose that job. If you had kids to pick up, you may not be able to do it. Um, I was fortunate to have a mother who was there for me, who would be willing to support me and, and, and look out for me. But, you know, this was a, a time where, you know, this really disrupts life in a way that's difficult to ever fix. The title of the introduction is uh, Palace de Excretia, which is quite literal. You have... Uh stomach churning description of, of what it was like when you entered the jail cell for the first time. I stood by the door for a moment. Then my senses brought the 10 by 10 cell into focus. The, the walls were painted the familiar shade, institutional agony and McDonald's french fries and champagne beige vomit color. The floor was soft uh, epoxy, chilled by a malevolent breeze that crisped my ankles and wafted the feature of festering rectums bygone. It's kind of Dostoevsky in your description and truly disgusting. I mean, and, and that wasn't unusual. I no, it's not. That, that, so what was unusual was that I, I made the mistake of interrupting a deputy going through the normal routine of asking people about mental health. Uh, when I, what I, what I might've done um, and what I, what I regretted later on was that I, I should have just let him just do the routine, but instead I interrupted him to say that I had had a mental health issue before. And 
he took that as a threat. And I'm not saying he should or shouldn't have, but he did. And then the response was to put me in that suicide cell, or I guess what they would call a safety cell. But the safety cell was maybe the worst place you can put somebody if you explain, if that person tells you that they may have suffered from a, a, mental, a mood disorder of some sort. It was an experience that is um, that I describe in quite detail, but it's it, even the detail doesn't really capture what it means to have been there. Yeah, I, I can't say I enjoyed reading it, but it's essential reading. I am talking with Michael J. Walker, the author of a really important new book, Oxford University Press, Indefinite, Doing Time in Jail, a book about his own experiences in jail. And it's the first ethnographic study of an American jail in over 30 years, which is quite astonishing. It's a really important book, and uh, it's a wonderful conversation. Uh, Michael, I want to talk about the structure of the book after the break, but for okay. the moment, let's take a 60-second break, and then we'll talk about how you organize the book and the role of vignettes in this important new study. Thank you. Uh, we'll be back in 60 seconds. Hold tight, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. Welcome back, everyone. I'm honored to be talking with Michael L. Walker, the author of Infinite, Doing Time in Jail, a shocking ethnography ethnographic study of American jails. Um, Michael, you organized the book in an unusual way around what you call vignettes. One that's entitled Despair, another The Boss, Hot Plates and Prada, Sensory Deprivation. Why did you choose vignettes and how, how, how does the book unfold in its narrative? So the first thing that I needed to do in order to sort of take somebody through the experience of being in jail. And as I should say, while I'm in the, I'm in the book, I, say, you know, I can't pretend to not have been in the book or been in jail. The book really isn't even necessarily about me or even really necessarily about any one individual 
person, but it's about the conditions that make jail what it is. So to do this, to sort of submerge the reader into these particular experiences, I tried to focus on the senses. So each vignette is, is something, is a, a bit of a moment that really captures something that's very unique to what it means to be to jail, be in jail. So these are things that necessarily didn't fit anywhere else in the book, but also that I thought were important for making sense of what's happening. And they kind of precede the chapters based on the idea that there's a mood that's sort of associated with each chapter that's coming next. I began with just trying to, you know, after the introduction, I really try to begin with, all right, what's the structure of the jail? Because a lot of what's kind of coming later on, I, I'm gonna be referencing things and you need a sense of, you know, who's who. So you need a sense of what it looks like to be objectified, to go through how race is used in the system, how the deputies have a relate, you know, what the deputies do in relation to, to uh, the penal residents. And then sort of in the second half of the book, I start to deal much more with the emotional content of being jailed. So the vignettes, they continue in that same way, still introducing sort of the emotional content of whatever it is I'm gonna discuss next. Yeah, you talk, um, uh, you, you describe your writing as three dimensional. Um, Michael the subject, Michael the narrator, and Michael the sociologist. Um, you, you talk about something called psychic distance. This is um, this is a strategy that novelists have used. In fact, I had uh, Upi, um, uh, Leah Upi on the show, a uh, British political theorist who spoke about Dostoevsky and her love of Dostoevsky because he always wrote with a, in, in a number of voices. Um, you've obviously been very influenced by sociologists, but are there literary uh, figures who have also influenced you in in in, in balancing these different voices in uh, Michael the subject, Michael the narrator, and Michael the sociologist. No, I can't. I'd be lying if I told you if I started trying to list a bunch of um, uh, literary scholars who who or not scholars, but just uh, writers who've who've um, changed the way or influenced the way that I thought about writing this particular book. What ended up happening was I I didn't have a way to make sense of the need to to have three different voices it just sort of emerged in a, in a relatively natural way at the same time i was reading john gardner just because i was interested in trying to find writing that was inspiring i mean it, i would not have been reading his work otherwise but it was just inspiring around the same time i was reading um james baldwin i was going back i was i was reading um i was listening to um, the auto audio version of uh, uh the parable of the sower and then I was going back and I was rereading The Souls of Black Folk by Du Bois. And what I was looking for was how do people deal with the different styles of writing and the different voices? But when I found John Gardner's work, that gave me you know, an actual term to, you know, to latch onto and a way of thinking about what it means to move in and out of these, uh, these different voices, the need to describe what's going on, but also as a sociologist to explain what's going on, but then as a person who's experiencing it to bring you into the, the emotional content of what's going on. Do you think being in jail, the experience of, of doing time, helped you build these different Michael Walkers? Uh, I don't, I don't, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to say. This is not a simple question. My first inclination is to say no. And it's largely because a friend of mine once described me like this. He said, you know, you having been in jail is the 17th thing that I think about. And this is one of my closest friends. And it's also the thing that I don't think about as much. I try not to, I should say. Um, 
And writing this book, what it did more than anything else was it gave me emotional distance from a past that I, that's painful. Um, did it shape who I am? It's hard to say. On the one hand, I want to say no, like I said. But on the other hand, I've written now a book about this, and this has become a, one of my main, you know, my, my primary research program. So it would be foolish to say that it hasn't had an effect on me at all. It's more about the way that I think about the world. I'm now aware of something that I would have never been aware of before, and I can't unknow it. You certainly can't. Anyone who reads this book, Indefinite, Doing Time in Jail, can't unknow it either, Michael. What do you want people to learn from this book? Is there a message? Yeah, the, the first thing I'd, I'd say is this is a place that, you know, almost one in 30 Americans um, will have been to. This is this is a, an organization that we need to pay much more attention to. But it's likely that for most the, the people who are going to read this book are likely to be the two thirds who haven't been to. Well, yeah, right. Not, not. I shouldn't say a third. I'm saying one in thirty. But you're, you're right. So the people who are re who are reading this are probably most likely people who've never been here. So one thing that people need to, I'm realizing now, just in recent conversations with other lay people, that there's some just basic groundwork that people just need to have an understanding of. First, that just being in jail doesn't mean that you've necessarily committed any crime. Um, most people who are in jail are just too poor to get out. That's sort of the main thing. You talked earlier on about what sort of separates people people who've been to jail and people who've not. But it's, there's another way to think about this. It's people who can afford to go to jail and get out and people who cannot. Yeah, like the Maxwell woman who, or, or, the, or, or, or uh, you know, the other woman from Silicon Valley whose name I've forgotten. Mm -hmm. These people can afford incredibly sophisticated Absolutely. lawyers and they commit, they don't do petty theft. They steal tens, hundreds of millions of dollars or they commit or involved in the commi uh, committing terrible sexual crimes and yet, they don't seem to go to jail. Yeah, not at all. So, or you can, you know, I think the Brock Turner case, um, that was the the swimmer. Yeah, the swimmer at Stanford. Yeah, the, the judge, you know, determined that he that he wouldn't be fit for prison time, right? So Yeah, but, I mean how I mean this is the the gorilla in the room, uh, Michael, when it comes to race. How central is the issue of race and prison in America? How intertwined are they? If if there were no black Americans, would you no longer would you no longer have this jail crisis in America? Well, I, I don't know if we can say that, but I can definitely say that you it's it is if you are a scholar interested in race, or if you are a scholar interested in criminal justice, you can't understand the American criminal justice system if you don't think about race. So whether you be a historian or political scientist, a sociologist, anthropologist, or just a lay person who cares about what's going on in the American criminal justice system race relations runs right through it. It is in fact, the thing that shapes our criminal justice system. And anyone who sort of thinks otherwise just really isn't aware. Do you ever escape jail? I mean, you're out and now you're a distinguished academic, uh, new book, a very important book by Oxford University Press, but do you ever really get out? Do you still wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and imagine you're still in jail? No, I don't have that. There are other holdovers um, that are less frightening than that. Um, but a friend of mine uh, who also wrote a great book, uh, Reuben J. Miller, he, um, he wrote a book called Halfway Home. He and I just discuss this all the time. There is this sense that the way out of whatever the, th the bad thing is that you've experienced, whether it be prison, jail, or um, drug rehab, whatever it is, oftentimes is to go back in. And that is, in, in, in our case, it's to go back and study the things that we experienced. For others, it may be volunteering in those. So in this regard, no, you don't escape it. Um, and you don't escape it largely because maybe there's nothing else you could be doing. 
people volunteer to help others who, who, who are trying to go through, or maybe not trying, but who are experiencing the same trauma they, they've once experienced as a way of, you know, one, trying to be a help, but also because in many cases, the labor system has made it so there's no place else that they could go. For me, in academia, maybe I could have, I could have focused on other things, but, you know, the academic world is such that you've got to sort of make good on the things, you know, what comes to you as it comes. And so I wasn't expecting to do this at all. I had no interest in the criminal justice system before I went, but here I am. So. Is there anything about the outside world that is maintained in, in jail? You write in a moving way about music, for example, the importance of music in your life when you were faced with the crisis, you needed to listen to music like your mother did. Uh, can you, do you have any privacy in jail where you can listen to music or write or just be alone? No, that's, so in prison, where there are far more resources, yeah, you could own a- I'm sorry, or, Michael, just said, and, and, I, and I apologize for my, mm-hmm. um, apologize for my mistake here. You do distinguish between prison and jail, and this is an important distinction, isn't it? Perhaps you might yes. explain this to our viewers. So- Jail is, so anyone who's been to prison had to have gone to jail first. The main difference between prison and jail is that prisons are built for long-term housing. So there is a a type of organization, a stability that comes with being in prison that you just don't get to have in jail. Anybody who's been to both will tell you that being in jail is a much more punishing environment, that prisons are much more difficult to navigate. Um, much more, I'm sorry, uh, prisons are much, much easier to navigate. There's a, as, as one gentleman told me, he said, being in, being in prison is like working for the government. You're just home. They make it, they try to make it comfortable for you. And the, the assumption is that you're not going anywhere. You're going to be here for at least a year or more. So we don't want to create a situation where you're, you know, in, in flux or, or, or suffering some type of mood disorder or, or being beaten up or whatever else. This doesn't mean that there's no violence in prison or, or no uncertainty. There certainly is. But jail doesn't have the resources. It's a short-term housing unit. So we understand, even though you can be there for years and years on end, in California now uh, with the Realignment Act, now you can be sentenced to jail time for over a decade, which is an insane amount of time to me. But the main difference is jail is for, for people who are sort of going through the pretrial system, uh, system. The only time you should actually be sentenced to jail generally, uh, except for in California, is if you're gonna be given a time that's under a year, we normally call that a, a, a county lid. Beyond that, the assumption is that you should be going to prison. If you've got a year or longer, normally in most cases you go to prison. So prison is for long-term, jail is for short-term. And then you should know that the resources are allocated accordingly. Jail, you're not gonna have any kind of educational programs. No, You're not going to college, there's no library you're going to, none of that. None of the things you may have heard about or read about, that you, all those things happen in prison. Um, there's no TVs. There's no it, like none of that. It's it's a very Spartan environment. I'm speaking with Michael L. Walker, the uh, the author of Indefinite: Doing Time in Jail. Michael, um, you have quite a lot of other literary references to. You, know, you talk about Irving Goffman's Asylums, um, uh, the Pride of Ju- uh, the Price of Justice, I think, by Ronald Goldfarb. Um, uh, the ethnographic interview, James Spradley. Uh, another book you talk about is The Jail by John Irwin. What books, in addition to yours, should people be reading to make sense of the American criminal justice system and so particularly this, jails and prisons? So absolutely go read uh, John Eason's book, uh, Eason, E-A-S-O-N. His book is called uh, The Big House on the Prairie. 
absolutely go read um, Ruben Miller's book. His book is called um, Halfway Home. And if you've not read Meg Megan Comfort's book, um, uh, which the name just popped out of my out of my head just right now, I'm inclined to go over there and just pick it up. But um, if you've not read Megan Comfort's book, you're, you're really doing yourself a disservice. You, it's a it's a, a really interesting study about what it means to to experience what she calls secondary prisonization, like going and visiting people. So it's it's about in, about prisons, but it's from the point of view of family members who are giving and offering support to people who are in prison. You read those three books, you'll learn a lot about what it means to 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 have to maintain the criminal American criminal justice system as it is. And finally, Michael, um, those are important books. Yours is an important book, um, indefinite. What else should people be reading in early February 2022? Your birthday's coming up. I hope you're not only reading books about jail and prison. Anything for fun? Anything uh, different? Yeah, absolutely. A little bit lighter. I'm working my way through Arlie Hochschild's work. Um, ah, so, yes, a Berkeley neighbor of mine. Uh, yes. She's been on the show. She's just brilliant. So I'm working my way through all of her work. I'm also working my way back Why through... do you like uh, Hofchild, Arlie Hochschild's work? Well, part of it is that um, her work is, let me just say, her work is often cited and often misquoted or miscited. So people talk about emotion work, in, not in the way that she talked about it. But I'm really interested in the nature of time, the sociology of time and the way that that affects our emotions. Mm. She does in many ways the best job of, of analyzing that, what that is. So if you're looking for somebody who can, who can make sense of the way time works and she writes in a way that's very accessible. Um, she's what, what do you make of her attempt to sort of understand the white working class in America? So yeah, that, that book Strangers in Our, what is it, Strangers in Our Land? Yeah. So I've not, I've not, yeah, I've not read that book yet. So, but. I thought it to be an important step to, to take. So it's not a it's not an ethnography that I would have undertaken, um, but it's definitely one that was in, that's important to do. And I don't even know if I would have had access to it, which is the reason why I wouldn't even try a study like that. I don't think this, that, that particular population of people would be willing to talk with me. Um, but she's brilliant, so she I'm working on it. And she's a lovely person as well. Mm -hmm. So that, and I'm I'm going back and I'm rereading um, classics. I'm reading the. The autobiography um, of Frederick Douglass. I'm rereading autobiography of um, Booker T. Washington, and I'm going back and I'm rereading Du Bois's work as well. And these, this is, you know, maybe somebody else wouldn't call that fun reading, but for me, it's fun reading. Well, Du Bois comes up all the time. Essential reading. Uh, Michael L. Walker may not be Du Bois, but uh, your new book, Indefinite: Doing Time in Jail, is really important, very moving, very profound book about what it's like, uh, the first ethnographic study of an American jail in over 30 years. It's just out in Oxford University Press. It's going to make a lot of noise and just as it should do. And I'm thrilled, uh, Michael, it's a real honor that you're on the show. Keep well, keep fighting, keep talking, keep telling people stuff that they don't want to hear because this is a story that has to be told and we need guys like you to tell it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it.